Well, greetings to you, friends. Whether you watch this video on the Friday it's released or at another time in the future, know that we so much appreciate you taking the time to prayerfully and attentively join your hearts with the rest of us here as Redeemer Church of Dubai. And if we haven't met yet, my name is Scott, and it's a joy for me to serve as one of the pastors for Redeemer Church. Along with my wife, Angela, uh, and our children, Redeemer, we miss you. We long to gather back together with you as soon as we are able here in Dubai. And to those of you that are watching from afar, please know that we're glad that these videos are able to be of some encouragement to you as well. We hope you're richly blessed as you pursue community uh, with the believers wherever the Lord has you locally at this time. Well, one of the centerpieces of these weekly videos, if you've been tracking along with us, is the preaching of God's Word. As members of Redeemer Church, one of the things that we commit uh, to one another in our church covenant is to defend and maintain just that, the preaching of God's Word. All of what we believe and do as a church should flow from having a right understanding of what God has spoken in His Word, the Bible. So we preach, we open God's Word, and we hear what it has to say to our hearts And although we're mostly apart from one another now due to COVID distancing requirements, as members, we we aim to remain unified by receiving the same preaching from God's Word and then discussing it with one another, applying it together, and reflecting on it throughout the week. So fellow members of Redeemer Church, let us engage our hearts and minds in that effort to right now live out our church covenant by upholding the preaching of the Word of God together. The portion of God's Word that we are preaching through in recent weeks is the book of Hebrews. And our text today in chapters 8 and 9 bring us to this idea of covenant. Not a local church covenant that I just mentioned, but a kind of covenant, a ultimate kind of covenant, and a covenant of internal importance, and a covenant we all need. This is truly a thrilling passage of Scripture to read and to reread. Hebrews is not a linear book arguing its ideas straight from point A to point B to point C, but it is a progressive book. It's helping us understand the history of redemption, or we could say the covenant of redemption from creation to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The author does start in chapter 1 in creation, but then he bounces around a little bit on a historical walkabout. The author mentions Abraham, and then he goes to Moses and Aaron But then he slides the timeline backward to Melchizedek, who was at the timeline of Abraham. And along the way, he's punctuating the writing with brilliant statements of who Jesus is and those stern warnings against neglecting to give Jesus attention. The author's going somewhere, but he's been weaving his way there. But here in chapters 8 and 9, this section begins with, now the point of what we are saying is this. It's almost as if the author has sort of been breathlessly spilling out this basket of glorious truths. And and now he takes a deep breath and says, okay, guys, this is what I've been trying to tell you. It's truly a turning point in the book, a zeroing in on his main idea. And it's a deeply beautiful and epic description of Jesus and his work on our behalf and what is ours in him. So two power-packed chapters. And what, and what he's doing here, to summarize, it can be summarized in verse 6 of chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. In Jesus, 
we have a covenant that is truer and better than anything we could ever imagine. And to help you appreciate how wonderful and incredible that is, it's really a task too much for me in these moments that we have together. But what I can try to do is I give you some framework to then yourself go and dwell in these chapters with a cup of tea and a journal and maybe a socially distanced friend and then just steep in them, soak in them, and delight in who our great Savior is, who ministers a new covenant to us in God. So towards setting you up for that, I want to ask and answer three questions. First, what is a covenant? Second, why do we need a covenant relationship with God? And third, how is the new covenant in Jesus better? So first, what is a covenant? A covenant might not be a term we use in conversation that often, but it refers to a concept that really rules the dynamics of our lives and relationships. At its most basic, a covenant is simply an agreement. It's a mutual understanding of, of what should be between two parties. And that understanding will either have communicated or assumed benefits and responsibilities attached. So while you probably never signed one of them, you've got covenants with your friends, friend covenants. There's shared expectations of time spent together, attention given, shared life and trust. And the benefits are there too, the, of mutual encouragement and the, the joy of good company and the obligations are there too to maintain those ex expectations of time and trust. And if you don't, the covenant's broken. And there's some things to do to sort it out. You've got covenants with your employer, often called contracts here in the UAE. And if you're married, you, you've made a covenant with another to be united with them and them only. Nations will make covenants with one another in the, the form of peace accords or trade deals. Or personally for us, whatever nation we are citizens of, we are in covenant with that government to be loyal to them. We receive whatever benefits they offer along with accepting the responsibilities of taxes, law-keeping, and concern. Otherwise, we're going to be charged as a criminal or a traitor in violation of that covenant that we have with the nation. You see, all throughout our lives, weave through the fabric of societies, is this idea of covenant relationships, both formally and informally, casually and officially, temporary and lifelong, personally and corporately. We exist and operate through covenants. And while, again, this, this word covenant may not be one that we use that often, I'm an advocate for it and making it more a part of our thinking and discussions. I have a 10-year-old daughter and, a, and an 11-year-old son. And whenever the topic of dating or marriage comes up in conversation or in a movie that they're watching, I tell them, kids, remember that covenant blessings come after covenant promises. What I'm saying to them is that the joys and the privileges of the union of souls and bodies is to be held in a covenant relationship, the covenant of marriage. So you want the blessings? You need to be in a position to make the promises to fulfill the covenant. At which point my kids roll their eyes and move on with the story that they're reading or the topic that we're discussing. They're a little young to be too interested in dating and marriage. But I want them to hear me say again and again and again, the importance of seeing marriage as a covenant relationship. The joy that flows from it for them eventually, should they enter into a marriage covenant someday, will be in measure to the seriousness with which they understand the corresponding responsibilities. And as a church, as I already mentioned, we have a church covenant 
which is a document of biblical principles that shape our life together as a community. It's the things that we commit to as fellow members, and it contains both the responsibilities, like we care for one another, uh, commitments to gather with one another, commitments to godly living, and there's benefits, spiritual growth, unified community, personal endurance to the end. And even though covenant is a weighty word, we don't shy away from calling this a covenant and calling each other to remember it. Because as members together, we're not just those who have joined a rewards program. We don't simply get points every time we do churchy stuff and then redeem them for good feelings. We're in covenant with one another, committed to one another, and living accordingly. If you're a member and you've not read our church covenant lately, I want to encourage you to jump on the church website or open your membership directory to remind yourself of what that covenant says. And for any of you who are not members, I want to invite you to be in covenant with us. We're not a perfect community. We fall short of our covenant, but we have a gracious God and we seek to live gracious lives towards one another in living out that covenant. So what's a covenant? I can't do much better than summarize what, or just give you the summary from theologian Ligon Duncan when he says this, a covenant is a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. At its heart, that's what a covenant is in the biblical sense and in what we see played out in various ways through our lives. So now secondly, why do we need a covenant relationship with God? Well, we need a covenant relationship with God because God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Clear across Scripture, we see him moving towards his people, making and keeping covenants with them. And this is a good thing because without covenants, we can't know how to be in relationship with God, what he expects of us, what the results might be of being in that covenant. Covenants give us shape and a clarity to relationships, and we need that with God. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to, well, Hebrews, the Israelite people, and he was able to lean really heavily on their, their knowledge of God's redemption slowly being revealed through his work with and through that people. But before I follow that approach to seeing the need for covenant relationship with God from the biblical perspective and story, let me also say that even for those who are not of Israel at that time or in our present day, all are aware of our need for a covenant with God and all are longing for covenant with God. This longing for covenant relationship with God, it shows up in the various religions of the world. I was recently at a, a meeting, and there was also two ladies there from very different religious backgrounds that had both come to faith in Jesus Christ. One was from a religious background that sought to make sense of this longing for covenant relationship with God by making God into a vague being who's manifested in millions of lesser gods. And the covenant made with that being is, is, is sort of this idea that if people accumulate enough merit through deeds and rituals that are more or less optional across their many incarnations of life, they'll be released from this life, which is a judgment for failures in past lives. Another was from a religious background that seeks covenant relationship with God through a specific one God who orders strict obedience to social and ritual laws and practices. And if they're able to do those things, they might escape the judgment of this, uh, that comes after this life. These are both examples of uh, humanity seeking to find that covenant relationship of God outside of his revealed word in Scripture and through Jesus Christ. 
But perhaps you're you're not from a background that sounds like either of those, but from a background that simply doesn't think much about God. Why would I say that you also seek a covenant relationship with God? Well, in Romans chapter 1 and 2, the, the Apostle Paul lays out this idea, this clear idea that even those apart from the law, those apart from the defined covenants with God were and are in a sense aware of God in their need for a relationship with him through covenants, through simply what they see in nature. Paul writes that there's a consciousness put in all men and women that brings them a sense of right and wrong. So even though they don't have those covenant responsibilities written out for them, they do things according to covenant law requirements. They don't. They try not to murder. They try not to lie. They try not to steal. Why are they doing that? Because they're showing by nature that they know that there's an expectations of God. They don't know it fully, but by their behavior, they're showing they long for it. So whether your background is a religious system that's attempting to give shape to that covenant relationship with God or not, our hearts long to be joined to, to be in covenant with that one who will fulfill all our hopes, relieve all our fears, and order all of our days. In short, whether we acknowledge God or not, we hope that he's there. We want him to be real. We want to know him and we want to long to walk in his ways. Author C.S. Lewis put it in, through one of his characters in the book, Till We Have Faces. He said this, It was when I was happiest that I longed the most. The sweetest thing in my life was been, has been the longing to know the place where beauty came from. You know, to know that there's a God, but to have no way of knowing if you're sure how to be in relationship with him. Uh, so to have a God without a clear covenant, that's the sad status of so many religious uh, groups operate with. Uh, you, 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 there's a God, but you don't know if he's going to accept you. You don't have a covenant, you kind of have a guess. God's a mystery, and our, our labors are burdensome, and uh, our sins continue to condemn us. And then on the other hand, if, if you reject God and pursue your own path to fulfillment and happiness, so you kind of make a covenant with yourself without God, that's just futility. You're working hard all your life and finding yourself, or, or you're trying to detach from it all. Either way, the covenant you're making with yourself apart from God will never satisfy, never bring true meaning, and never remove the guilt you know you carry. Well, I have great news for all of you. Whether you're from a Christian background, a Jewish background, another religious background, or no religious background, God is real, and he's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. From the earliest pages of Scripture, we see this. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the first man, Adam, and he makes a covenant with him. It's a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. God created a place for Adam to be in relationship with him, a garden where they could walk and talk together and where Adam would be provided for and would thrive so long as he fulfilled the obligation not to eat from a specific tree. And the benefits of this covenant were were numerous and glorious. And yet Adam did the one thing that he was told not to do, and he broke the covenant. By his works, by his sin, by eating what was forbidden, he showed that he considered himself above the covenant, apart from it, and willing to go his own way outside of that relationship with God through covenant. And that was the consequence he received. He was banished from the garden. His his work, rather than purposeful, became toilsome. His family, rather than unified, became um, murderous enemies of one another. And from that violation of the covenant with God, Adam, the first man, launched humanity 
as a covenant-longing and yet covenant-breaking people. But God wasn't done. You see, it's in his very nature to love his creation and the people in whom he put his image. And throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly moves towards his people in making and keeping covenants with them. Whether Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, God begins unveiling his promises um, in the way that he's going to be in covenant relationship in spite of Adam's rejection. And what was God's response? Grace. Unmerited favor. Rather than annihilating these people, the Lord would answer their longing to be in covenant with them. And he'd do that by bringing more and more shape and definition and clarity to what redemption by grace would look like. More understanding to how God and man could be in relationship with each other by being in the right covenant together. In the covenant with Adam, there was an opportunity not to sin. But Adam fell short. And humanity was made aware of good and evil at a deep and profound level. They were made aware that every person after Adam was born in that same nature, not to fulfill God's covenants, but to turn away from them. And yet, throughout the covenants in the Old Testament, God then showed them both the depth of their sin and the ways that they continued to not live up to the covenants. And God pointed them to the grace to be revealed. He continued to relentlessly show himself to be gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness and grace. We all long to be in covenant relationship with God, but we know that we can't live up to our side of the arrangement. So how can we get into a covenant relationship with him? How can we stay in it? Well, there's a new covenant. And in this covenant, we don't just see our sin and our frailty and long for grace. We see divine grace. We see the divine fulfillment of all the covenant's obligations, and we are invited to have all our sins removed and receive all of the eternal rewards. We need that kind of covenant. Let me tell you about it. Our third question, how is the covenant in Jesus better? Throughout chapters 8 and 9 here in Hebrews, the author is speaking of the idea of an old covenant and a new covenant. And if you've been kind of tracking along with me here as we've been talking about covenant, you'll remember that I've already spoken of several covenants that were there in the Old Testament. So which of those covenants is the author referring in Hebrews here as the old covenant? Well, we see in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31. And what we see there is the author has in mind the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the one that the Lord made with Moses on Mount Sinai with his people. And why is this different? Why is this different? Why not the the covenant of Noah or with Abraham or David? And what's consistent with those covenants is they're all revealing things about God's intentions and commitments to his redemptive plan and his people. But the Mosaic covenant in specific is made with the people in general. It's recorded in in the book of Exodus. and, And God sets the stage for the Mosaic covenant by redeeming and rescuing his people from Egypt. And on the summit of Mount Sinai, he personally reveals himself to Moses and he speaks the covenant obligations and blessings. Through Moses, then, he gives the rituals and laws so the covenant can be passed from generation to generation. And then the Lord leads his people into the promised land. Having banished the original covenant breaker, Adam, from the garden, he brings his covenant people to a lush and fertile land. And yet they do not keep the covenant. 
They continue in the ways of Adam. They try to form a life apart from following God and his covenant responsibilities. And because of this, they are banished from the land God had given them. Just like Adam had been removed from the garden and these people are taken into exile to be captives. But then for hundreds of years, throughout their covenant-breaking history, and amidst the pain of the longing to be in covenant with God, but knowing that they could only do so by his grace yet to be seen, promises are made. A new covenant is coming. That's what we see in Jeremiah here. And so the old covenant in view there in 8 and 9, chapters 8 and 9, is the old covenant, and that is the one made to God's people that is now being left behind in favor of this new covenant in Christ. The old covenant is spoken of as imperfect in in verse 7 of chapter 8. It said if the old covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for another. And that might strike us as strange at first. Was there something insufficient about uh, the covenant God made with his people in the Old Testament? Well, no and yes. No and that the, the covenant itself perfectly accomplished what the Lord set out for it to do. It brought the people along in the next steps of seeing his eternal purposes and plan for their redemption. But yes, in that it was not able to be a complete solution, an enduring arrangement, in that it only served to remind the people of their sin rather than reveal to them redemption. In chapter 8, verse 8, he says that he finds fault with them. Who? The people. The people that don't keep the covenant, they fail to keep it, and thus they're covered in their iniquities and sin. The old covenant is spoken of in in chapter 8, verse 13, as something that's becoming old and past its prime. Its usefulness has been exhausted. Its its purpose has been filled. And now's the time for something new. So again, you see, it's not that the old covenant was wrong and the new covenant is right. It's not that the old covenant presented the demands of a dictator God, and and now there's a new one with a gracious God. No, 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 no. The old covenant was a good and necessary stage in the unfolding of God's plan of gracious redemption. In Galatians, Paul refers to the law of the old covenant like a guardian or or a tutor. In in a place, it's helping to prepare, to teach, to help to understand, to protect But it's not something that's in contrast to the character of God. It's not something that that is completely different. It's something that was supposed to be freeing them to understand things about who God is. But it's not the ultimate thing. But then Paul says in Galatians 3, Now that faith has come, now that Jesus is redeeming us from the curse of covenant-breaking sins, we have no need of a guardian. Or as the writer of Hebrews says in 8.13, The old covenant is being made obsolete. It's being replaced like a four-year-old mobile phone because the new iPhone is out. Okay, you say. Uh, This new covenant's better, but how? Well, let me tell you in closing three ways that this new covenant made with us through Jesus is truer and better than anything we could ever imagine. It's based in divine redemption. It's confirmed by fulfilled responsibilities and it's distributing eternal rewards. It comes about by divine redemption. What the previous covenants since Abraham pointed to, the new covenant makes vividly visual and clear. Jesus is our redemption from sin, not rule-keeping, 
not deed doing, not vocational productivity. The basis for this covenant being kept is not our keeping the rules, but Jesus himself keeping us by his cleansing blood and his sacrifice on the cross. In chapter 9, the author invites the readers to remember the ritual of, of the high priest going into the temple. Once a year, he would go past the common area to the Holy of Holies, the symbolic presence of God. And what he'd do there is he'd sprinkle the blood of animals for the sins of the people. And that was to remind the people that the consequence for sin was death. And without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. Well, the new covenant is better and truer than that. Because Jesus did not go symbolically into a room where smoke represented God's presence and an animal blood stood in as a sign for payment of sins. But Jesus, God himself, went into the heavenly throne of God to the true presence of the Almighty and thereby his own blood once and for all provided the cleansing for sin for all who would turn to the living God. The old covenant reminded of sins. Outside of this covenant, we have to face our sins as Uh, Verse 27 tells us in chapter 9, it's appointed to man once to die and then comes judgment. But in the new covenant, oh friends, in in the new covenant, our sins are remembered no more and we're purified from dead works to serve the living God. And we can eagerly await seeing Jesus again, knowing that when he comes, he's not going to be dealing with sin, but he will be saving us for eternity. This is the better covenant because it cleanses us from our sins. It forgives us from our sins. It frees us from our sins. What could be better? We come to this covenant, not as covenant breakers, who will inevitably be faulty and staying with it. We come to this covenant as covenant-longing worshipers of Jesus Christ, who have been forgiven from their sins and are welcomed into relationship with God himself. This new covenant is also better because it's confirmed by fulfilled responsibilities. Fulfilled responsibilities. What I mean by that is Jesus has not only paid the penalty for our sins and and cleansed us from all unrighteousness by his death on the cross for our sins, but Jesus, as the lamb without blemish, fulfilled the law in every way, was obedient to every aspect of the old covenant so that we would not only be forgiven, but in him be righteous. You see, ever since Adam broke the first covenant between God and man, we've understood by nature that something must be done to make up for that breach of obligations, that work of disobedience. But throughout the Old Testament, and in our own experience, apart from Christ, all we see is how insufficient we are to doing anything about that. Our best efforts come up short. Our most holy actions, even if we see them have some impact, they have mixed motivations. And the answer is not us getting into a covenant where the bar is set so low that we can actually accomplish its obligations. No, the answer is the perfect obligations, the true obedience in every manner being accomplished, but not by us because we can't, but by God who through Jesus did. In Jesus, God fulfilled all of the old covenant obligations that we can never fulfill so that we could get all of the new covenant blessings Only he can offer. Friends, isn't that amazing? A relationship that begins with a sure cleansing from that which can stain it. A promise continuing based on the sure work of its perfect fulfillment uh, being met. This covenant's getting off to a good start. But what about the blessings? Well, this new covenant is distributing eternal rewards. 
Twice in chapter 9, he talks about the idea of something being an eternal reward. He talks about our redemption and our inheritance. Redemption is that we are saved from what we do deserve, judgment from sin. Inheritance is we are given what we don't deserve, life for eternity. It's eternal blessings. And, and throughout these chapters, the author has been speaking of things on earth here as copies and shadows, patterns of true things but not the true things, signposts of what's to come, like the real but not quite it. And eternity is the truly true. It's the heavenly. It's the ultimate. That's what we're being pointed to. And, and this doesn't remove the meaning of life. It actually fills our days right now with purpose and worth. Think about it this way. When you're given a vaccine protection from the disease, you're going to walk out into the world with a reasonable self-confidence to go about your days without fear. Or if a rich uncle died and he leaves you his millions, well, you're suddenly going to be able to have your financial worries at rest and do that work that you're passionate about. Well, in Christ, we have nothing to fear and we have gained everything. Because of his redemption from sin, we can be free to be weak. We can be free to confess sin because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and nothing can separate us from his love. Because we've been reconciled with God, we can have real relationships with one another because we don't need to be ashamed or hide. But we can love others genuinely because we have been completely loved by God. Because of his inheritance, we can be confident to store up treasures in heaven and, and be shockingly generous with anything that we are entrusted with now. Because we work not to build up an inheritance to give to our children, but out of the steadfast assurance that we are already blessed with everything we could ever need. In the new covenant ministry of Christ, we find a covenant truer and better than any we could ever imagine. God himself inviting us into a relationship with him, not based on our performance, but on his perfect sacrifice in righteousness, blessings of forgiveness of sins, eternal joy, life with God, a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. He's kept the full obligations. He's giving the eternal blessings. We can be bound to God through the covenant he is making with us in Christ. What about our obligations? I didn't talk about those too much, did I? But here they are. Believe. Trust. Turn to him in faith. Lay your burdens at his feet. Reject your faulty covenant breaking. Stop laboring to your made-up covenants with yourself that lead nowhere. Look to Jesus. Eagerly wait for him. Experience the purifying power of being in a covenant of grace with the redeeming, covenant-making, and covenant-keeping God. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. By nature, we are the covenant-longing and covenant-breaking people. Lord, thank you for your Son, Jesus, who rescues us from all of our faults, all of our iniquities, all of our sins, dresses us in his obedience and his righteousness and his perfect fulfillment of all that you've required and gives to us his inheritance of blessings. Oh, Father, we don't deserve this. We are so thankful to be in covenant relationship with you through Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.